This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audio entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. When you're done with this episode, please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for a free audiobook with your free 30-day trial membership. This week's recommendation is The Last Supper by Ross King. It helps illuminate why The Last Supper was such a pivotal work and why Leonardo was considered such a genius despite completing so few works. You may choose this or any other title when you visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for your free download. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance, Episode 18, Leonardo. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Bird. At the end of the last episode, I mistakenly said that episode 18 would be Michelangelo. Well, as you've probably guessed, it's not Michelangelo, but rather Leonardo. We will get to Michelangelo in the next episode. Before we get started, I want to tell you about a new way you can support the show. Patreon. Patreon is a site that allows you to set up a recurring donation for the podcast. One of the biggest upgrades I'd like to see happen for the show is an upgrade of my mic and preamp to something a little bit more professional. In addition to improving the sound quality, it will also save me a lot of time in post-production. The goal is to make this show bigger and better with each episode. I have future plans for this show and beyond, and your support will make it possible. If you'd like to help me with this, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the renaissance. I calculate that if every listener just donated a dollar per episode, we would be able to incorporate many of the upgrades in only a month or two. With that, let's go ahead and get started with Leonardo. When I mapped out my plan for this episode on Leonardo, I had actually given him two episodes. Except there's one problem. Leonardo never really completed much work. He is one of the greatest geniuses of the renaissance, and that is undisputed. But we only have about 15 works or so by his own hand. Why is that? Well, a combination of a hyperactive mind and his endless experimentation has left us with few surviving works. The work that catapulted him to fame, The Last Supper, is in such a bad state of disrepair that only a fraction of the original work remains. And yet, it still captivates us. We only know limited details about Leonardo's youth. He was born in 1452 in the town of Vinci, outside of Florence. He seldom went by da Vinci, however. He would have been known simply as Leonardo di San Piero, or Leonardo, the son of Piero. Da Vinci just means from Vinci, and Leonardo preferred not to draw attention to his provincial roots. He would sometimes go by di Firenze, or Leonardo from Florence, when he traveled abroad. 
It had a more cosmopolitan feel that he preferred. So it's a bit of an irony that he is now known as Da Vinci today. The illegitimate son of Piero Antonio, a well-to-do Florentine notary, Leonardo spent some of his early years in the home of Caterina, his mother. He was soon brought into the home of Piero and his grandfather. We know little of Caterina, but in Ross King's The Last Supper, he makes the case that Caterina was actually a slave of Piero's household. There seems to be quite a bit of evidence supporting this theory. Slavery of young girls was common in Italy during this time. Though most territories had laws banning the enslavement of Italians or Christians, slaves were therefore captured and purchased from the Muslim territories. Since these were not Christians, they were considered suitable for slavery. It is possible that Leonardo's mother came from North Africa or some other portion of the Ottoman Empire, which controlled much of the Mediterranean. So it's very possible that Leonardo could be of Arabic or even Slavic descent. Young girls were preferred for this because they could be used not only as household domestic servants, but also as sex slaves for their owners. Any children that resulted from the union of a slave and a master in Italy were automatically born free. The custom was that the master would free the girl, but he would also have to find a suitable match for her to marry, and then provide her with a dowry. Caterina may have been owned by Piero's father, Leonardo's grandfather. It would, however, have been inappropriate for Piero to marry Caterina, given his status as a notary, which ranked among the elite of Florentine society. Leonardo was the son of a noble family, and once he was old enough to be away from his mother, he was taken away since she could not be trusted to give him a proper education. From this point forward, he lived in the household of his father. Interestingly, his father never adopted Leonardo. Therefore, Leonardo remained an illegitimate son. It would have been common and perfectly acceptable to have adopted him. Why didn't he adopt him? One can only guess... But it did mean that Leonardo, as a bastard son, could not enter the guild of the notaries, which was very exclusive. This left him free, however, to join the craftsmen like the sculptors and the goldsmiths. Piero arranged to have Leonardo apprentice with the artist Verrocchio, one of the most prestigious goldsmiths and artists in Florence of the day. As we have seen previously, the trade of the goldsmith would have given Leonardo the skills necessary to excel in several different media. Brunelleschi and Ghiberti were apprenticed to Goldsmith, and Leonardo, since he was never adopted by his natural father, was free to pursue a career in the Goldsmith's Guild. Were he made legitimate through adoption, it's likely he would have been expected to follow in his father's footsteps as a notary. Artists were considered tradesmen, however, which is why they generally came from the working-class families of Florence. In Verrocchio's workshop, he would have learned to draw, but he would have also learned casting and the basics of architecture. Despite his reputation as a mathematician, Leonardo would have very little training in this area within the workshop. He would receive some rudimentary mathematical training so that he could operate a business, but beyond that, his education was limited. In fact, his mathematical equations are often wrong but he did have a keen interest and continued to teach himself the finer points of geometry and algebra. One thing that was lacking in his artistic training was fresco. Verrocchio did not work in fresco, but rather tempera. Leonardo's experimentation with oil might have been encouraged in Verrocchio's workshop. 
We're not sure exactly what dates he worked with Verrocchio, but it is very possible he was with Verrocchio as he designed and prepared for the giant equestrian statue. It is very possible he was with Verrocchio as he designed and prepared for the giant equestrian statue, the Gata Malata. Leonardo would continue to work closely with Verrocchio even after Leonardo set up his own studio in Florence. His time with Verrocchio is not well documented, but it is very likely he modeled for Verrocchio as Leonardo was known for being both athletic and handsome. Even into his old age, his physical strength was commented upon by his contemporaries. This is something that's lost in the typical image of the bearded old sage we're used to seeing. Leonardo would spend six or seven years with Verrocchio, working his way to becoming a master painter himself. According to Vasari, he painted the figure of the angel in the baptism of Christ. It was painted so well, he says, that Verrocchio was said to have given up his paints after witnessing Leonardo work. This most certainly is not true, but it makes for a great story, setting Leonardo up as the genius painter. It's believed that Leonardo also worked on the painting of Tobias and the angel, mainly the little dog in the piece. In 1472, Leonardo qualified as a master in the Guild of St. Luke. Despite this, he would continue to work closely with Verrocchio. He would even lodge in Verrocchio's home after completing his apprenticeship. He finally set up an independent workshop in 1476. It seems unusual that he would stay with his former master, but they shared an interest in geometry as well as music, and it allowed Leonardo entry into a world of art and philosophical pursuits. Through Verrocchio, Leonardo was granted access to the Medici Villa, where he would maintain an apartment. Lorenzo saw the talent young Leonardo possessed, and wished to add him to his growing stable of artists. It seems that he received a small salary for studying and sketching the ancient Greek and Roman statuary collected by Lorenzo de' Medici. This not only allowed him to study the works of ancient Rome and Greece firsthand, but it also opened the door for future commissions through Lorenzo's patronage. His first commission was to paint an altarpiece for the Chapel of the Signoria. He seemed to be poised for a successful career in Florence. He was commissioned by King John of Portugal for a tapestry and by the monks of San Donato a Scopetto for a painting of the Adoration of the Magi. Each one of these important works went unfinished. King John never received his tapestry, nor did Leonardo complete the altarpiece for the Sonoria. He was unable to complete most of the early commissions he had been given, and this would set the working pattern for the rest of his life. After these failed starts, Leonardo began looking for opportunities outside of Florence. Not only a change of scenery, but also a change of careers. He presented himself before the Duke of Milan with the recommendation of Lorenzo de' Medici. In a long letter of introduction, Leonardo brought from Lorenzo, not once did he mention that he was a painter, or that he had apprenticed with Verrocchio. Instead, he rebranded himself as an architect and a military engineer rather than a painter. It's possible that Lorenzo sent Leonardo to Ludovico Sforza, the Duke of Milan, as a way to cement their alliance. Leonardo looked to Lorenzo as the epitome of good taste in art and culture, and he wished to bring Milan 
into the full embrace of the Renaissance. Despite Lorenzo's recommendation, there is little evidence that he completed any engineering task in Florence. Though it's likely he had undertaken some engineering projects while assisting Verrocchio. There's also evidence that his sketches for his war machines began while he was in Florence. Despite his efforts to work as a mechanical or military engineer, few projects came his way. His first known work in Milan was for the Confraternity of the Immaculate Conception. The monks contracted him to paint the Immaculate Conception in 1483. We can assume that Ludovico orchestrated the commission for Leonardo, along with two other painters, one of whom was the court painter for Ludovico. Leonardo, who was to complete the main altarpiece, depicting Mary and the Christ Child, received a down payment of 100 lira in 1483. The subject of the Immaculate Conception was a relatively new doctrine within the Catholic Church. It was not without some controversy within the Church, with the Franciscans supporting the doctrine of Immaculate Conception and with the Dominicans violently opposing it. Among Christians, Jesus' birth has always been seen as immaculate or free from original sin. However, during the Middle Ages, a doctrine arose that Mary, too, was free of the stain of original sin. This does not mean she was born of a virgin birth, but that God allowed for her to be conceived without original sin, since she would be the vessel that would give birth to Christ. This has been codified and clarified over the centuries at the Council of Trent and by Pope Pius IX in 1854. He says, Therefore, Far above all the angels and all the saints, so wondrously did God endow her with the abundance of all heavenly gifts poured from the treasury of his divinity, that his mother, ever absolutely free of all stain of sin, all fair and perfect, would possess the fullness of holy innocence and sanctity than which, under God, one cannot even imagine anything greater, and which, outside of God, no mind can succeed in comprehending fully. In Leonardo's work, we see the Virgin Mary with Jesus and John the Baptist, both infants, and an angel. Presumably, the angel is Gabriel, but he appears distinctly feminine. The angel is one of these androgynous figures Leonardo would paint so often. The infant Jesus, sitting next to the angel, raises his hand in the sign of blessing toward John the Baptist. Here also, we see his use of Safumato. Suffumato is an Italian term meaning to evaporate like smoke. Leonardo would become known for this effect that would create such atmosphere in his paintings. After completing most of the painting, he would glaze a final coat of varnish mixed with a black pigment to create this smoke-like effect. This would help unify the surface as well as creating the suffumato effect. For those of you familiar with this piece, which has become known as the Virgin of the Rocks, there are two versions. The first was begun in 1483 and can now be found in the Louvre. The second version was begun in 1495 and is on view in the National Gallery of London. The fact that there are two versions of this famous painting has led to quite a bit of rivalry between the two museums. The London version is much more conventional. Uh, despite the masterful handling of the faces, the baby Jesus is less structurally solid than the earlier version. Quite honestly, he looks like a sack of potatoes. So, why are there two versions of the same altarpiece? Typical with Leonardo, his work got off to a slow start. Leonardo delayed, and he fought with the monks of the confraternity. 
When they were presented with the work, they rejected it. Where are the halos? Where are the wings for the angels? This is not a fit altarpiece for the order whose sole purpose was to defend the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Who was Leonardo to tinker with iconography and theological doctrine so vital to the confraternity? No, this was not something they could hang in their altar. So they sue Leonardo and the other two artists for a breach of contract. The brothers wanted the return of their 800 lira, but Leonardo and the one other surviving member of the trio, Ambrosia, appealed to Ludovico Sforza that the money had already been spent. Leonardo and Ambrosia went even further, claiming that the monks were unfit to judge their work. This goes against the typical attitudes of the time, where a painter was not considered an artistic genius, but merely a craftsman, something that Leonardo would chafe at for the rest of his life. Artists were typically at the whim of their patrons, and often signed elaborate contracts stating that the patron would be the sole judge of the merit of the work and if the artist would receive compensation. Despite the suit, many, including Leonardo, felt he had finally created a sublime masterpiece that demonstrated his true talent. Unfortunately, the work would remain unseen for 25 years. The altarpiece would be completed in 1508, but would contain a different central panel, the London version. The second version, while still a masterpiece, does not demonstrate the same fire we see in the earlier one. It was painted true to form with halos and wings and everything that the monks asked for. It's very possible that some of Leonardo's students helped him with the work, and he may have passed the work on to them, being uninterested in the piece after so long. This might explain why the painting lacks some of the same movement and the delicacy of his first attempt. The first version of the Virgin of the Rocks would disappear only to reappear in the collection of the French royal family. The second version would find its way to London, where it is permanently displayed in the National Gallery. Leonardo had dreamt of a large equestrian monument for years. Perhaps he was inspired by Verrocchio's masterpiece, the Gata Malata, in Venice. In 1482, Ludovico commissioned Leonardo for a giant equestrian statue to honor his father. Finally, after the failure of the Virgin of the Rocks, this would be his chance for a large-scale public monument to cement his reputation. Leonardo went right to work, but it seems he spent so much time sketching in the Duke's stables and experimenting with materials that he never completed it. After ten years, he had only designed a clay model of the horse, never mind the rider, Ludovico's father. Sforza began to have doubts whether Leonardo was up to the task and sent letters to Lorenzo de' Medici looking for another sculptor who might be able to finish the job. Leonardo had no one to send, for Michelangelo was in Rome at the time. What we are left with are multiple sketchbooks of horses and anatomy, much of it groundbreaking, but he never began the actual piece. Instead, the Duke lost interest in the work and pushed for Leonardo to pursue a new project. A painting of the Last Supper in the refectory of the Monastery of Santa Maria della Grazia. A church remodeled by Leonardo's friend, Bermonti, and one of the most important monasteries in Milan. For years, while working on the Last Supper, Leonardo would complain bitterly that he was being kept from his work on the horse. The clay model, which was housed in the Sforza Palace, would be destroyed by the French in 1499. 
It would be the Last Supper, ironically, that would cement Leonardo's reputation as the greatest painter of the day. It's not the Virgin of the Rocks, nor any of his unfinished works, not even the Mona Lisa, which was rarely seen by the public until the middle of the 19th century. No, it was the Last Supper that would become his masterpiece and change the world of art. This painting is the reason why we seldom remember the works of Verrocchio or Ghirlandaio, both of whom were great masters and the best painters of their day. But with one painting, Leonardo changed the way we look at art. It was a giant shift in the aesthetic of Western Europe. The Last Supper is a common motif in refectories where the monks and nuns dine. It's meant to remind them of the communal nature of the Eucharist, which was instituted during the Last Supper, as well as place them amongst Christ's disciples. Typically, these scenes were painted to appear very calm and quiet, mimicking the silence of the monks who dined in total silence, except for one monk who was assigned to read the Gospels. There are several accounts in the Gospels of the Last Supper. Each one has slightly varying details, but the core of the story is the same. Christ breaks the bread, instituting the Eucharist, or Communion, and he announces that one of his disciples will betray him. The Gospel of John, however, provides much more detail and gives the artist a vivid description of the announcement of the betrayal. Leonardo was working from an Italian translation of the Bible and most likely looked to the book of John. John 13, verse 1 through 4, Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from the Father and was going back to God, rose from supper. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus, of whom was he speaking? So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Interestingly, John excludes the institution of the Eucharist, but Leonardo is more interested in the drama of Jesus' announcement to his disciples. There's evidence in his sketchbooks that he had begun thinking about this long before he was given the commission in Milan. One sketch completed almost a decade earlier is most likely from the benches near the Sonoria where men from all walks of life would gather to discuss and debate all manner of ideas. Leonardo made many detailed sketches of the excited hand gestures of these bench sitters, 
as they passionately debated one another. One sketch in particular seems to show a figure of Christ inserted amongst the bench sitters. In a similar design that he would paint years later in Santa Maria della Grazia, Leonardo stressed the importance of drawing from life and would carry a sketchbook with him at all times. It would have been unusual to see an artist sketching in the piazzas of Florence. Most artists worked exclusively in the studio and, when needed, used their apprentices as models or used model books. But Leonardo was obsessed with observing nature and thought it was a poor artist who resorted to model books. These sketches would serve as inspiration for his painting of the Last Supper, as he depicted a raucous scene when Christ announced the betrayal. Here again, he breaks from tradition. But this seemed to have the approval and the support of the monks, as well as Ludovico Sforza. So Leonardo's Last Supper would be a tumult of gesticulating hands and agitated faces, Only Christ in the center would remain calm. The apostles are all grouped in threes, emphasizing the Trinity, as well as the three theological virtues. He breaks with tradition once again by having Judas sitting among the other disciples. Typically, Judas was shown on the opposite side of the table to emphasize his separation from Christ. Leonardo depicts this another way. Judas is darker than the others, showing a separation of spirit, though physically he is still amongst them at the table. Pulling from other accounts, Leonardo shows Judas reaching for the loaf of bread at the same time Jesus does, indicating that he is the betrayer. Upon hearing the announcement, Peter stands up in outrage with a knife, more of a weapon than an eating utensil. His knife points towards Bartholomew, alluding to his martyrdom. Bartholomew was martyred by being skinned alive. Thomas's finger points upward, hinting at his doubts about Christ's resurrection. John, who is seated next to Jesus, seems to be swooning. He is often depicted with his head resting on Jesus' chest, as described in the Gospel. However, Leonardo departed once again from this traditional depiction. John is depicted leaning towards Peter, asking to identify the betrayer. John is depicted much younger than the other disciples. Mainly, this is shown by his lack of a beard. Peter and John are both depicted close to Christ and on his right side. This is because these are the two figures who would be the leaders of the church after Christ's death and resurrection. Peter was considered the head of the church and granted authority over Christ's ministry after his death, This is typically seen in Matthew 16, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. John is depicted next to Jesus because he is the author of Revelation, the last book of the Bible and the one that tells of Jesus' return. In this work, we see Leonardo's virtuosity as a painter. As I've said previously, this work changed the game of painting, and everyone living at the time knew it. Once it was finished, many painters would imitate this new style of Leonardo. His innovation doesn't stop with how the work is composed, but also with the process of painting itself. Here's where we run into problems. Leonardo was trained as a painter, among other things, in Verrocchio's workshop, but Verrocchio never worked in fresco 
a temperamental technique that requires the artist to follow a strict set of rules when applying the plaster and the pigment. Despite being a durable medium, if improperly executed, the fresco would certainly fail. The most reliable method for fresco is bone fresco, or true fresco. Here the pigment is applied directly to the wet plaster, and it's sealed within it, creating a durable surface. However, with this method, there are certain colors that just can't be used, such as lapis lazuli, a very expensive blue pigment that looks very pale and bleached when it reacts with the plaster. In this case, the paint would be applied over the surface using an egg yolk binder in a technique known as secco fresco, and then the completed painting would be varnished. Unfortunately, this will eventually flake off, as we can see in Giotto's work, leaving just the tonal painting completed in bone fresco. Leonardo departed even from the secco technique and experimented with oil binders. He primed the wall with lead white, as you would for a panel or a canvas, and then proceeded to paint in the same manner as he would on canvas. He completed a carefully executed underpainting and even used a chalk line to ensure accurate perspective. We know this because the nail hole is still present in Christ's head. He would then proceed with a series of glazes and build up the layers of the painting. This was a slow and time-consuming process, and often Leonardo would just stand in front of the painting for hours without touching a brush. This seems to have concerned the Duke, who feared that he would not complete this commission either. Another artist had been commissioned to paint a complementary painting on the opposite wall of the refectory. He, however, worked in bone fresco, and was finished in less than half the time it took Leonardo. Leonardo, though, would complete the work, and all who saw it would marvel at its beauty. Unfortunately, it began to deteriorate soon after it was completed. Had he painted on a wood panel or a canvas, it likely would have stood the test of time. But even by Vasari's day, only 60 years later, it had deteriorated to the point that the figures were unrecognizable. Within a few years, mold would grow between the layers of paint and the wall. Eventually, the painting began to separate from the wall completely. A restoration attempted in 1770 led to the restorer filling in missing chunks of paint and repainting the faces until he was halted due to public outrage. In 1821, an attempt was made to remove the painting to a safer location. An expert at removing fresco was called in, and he removed a chunk of the middle of the painting before realizing this was not actually a fresco, but an oil painting on top of a wall. He tried to repair the work by gluing the pieces back into place. The painting underwent several other cleanings and restorations in the early 20th century prior to World War II. The refectory had been hit by a British bomb during World War II, but the wall of the Last Supper had been spared because the locals had sandbagged the painting in order to protect it. Finally, in the 1970s, a major restoration was begun. The restorers wished to strip all of the old restorations and leave only Leonardo's original work. Well, what's left of it anyway. Even this effort was controversial, and much of what you see when you enter the airtight enclosure is but a ghost of Leonardo's original work. We only see a small percentage of the painting that survives, though that small percentage is still very impressive. Now, much has been made of the mystery surrounding Leonardo's work, no doubt due to the popularity of Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code. The premise of the book is that Leonardo was the prior of a secret order, the Priory of Zion, that kept the secret of the Holy Grail, 
which in this case refers to the descendants of Christ. Part of the problem with the whole story is that it's based on the forgeries of an anti-Semitic French priest. He sought to place himself within the lineage of Christ through a series of documents he forged tracing the route of a pregnant Mary Magdalene to France. There's no evidence that Leonardo painted Mary into the painting of the Last Supper. It was typical, though, to show John with feminized features due to his youth. In the Da Vinci Code, Lee Teabing tells Sophie that Leonardo knew how to paint women, insinuating that the figure of John is clearly a woman, Mary Magdalene. The problem with this is, as Ross King so clearly states, Leonardo was a master of blending the sexes. Many of his figures were androgynous or hermaphroditic, and the figures seemed to blend both masculine and feminine beauty. Just look at the angel and the Virgin of the Rocks. It's impossible to say whether that's male or female. A second point against the argument that the Last Supper is some sort of code indicating that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene is that it would not have been unusual to include Mary in the portrayal of the Last Supper. As the first disciple to see Jesus after he rose from the dead, she held a place of honor within the church, and she was often included in scenes of the Last Supper, for Angelico included her in his version in the convent of San Marco. If it was not considered offensive in the Dominican convent of San Marcos, why then would it be considered offensive in the Dominican convent of Santa Maria della Grazia? The monks would most likely have responded very favorably to the inclusion of Mary Magdalene in the depiction of the Last Supper. Therefore, there would be no reason to hide this, so we can safely say that this is not Mary to Jesus' right side, but in fact John. Upon completion of the Last Supper, war finally came Leonardo's way. The invasion of the French, encouraged by Ludovico Sforza, caused turmoil throughout the peninsula. Milan joined the Pope along with Venice in the Holy League, but the Italians were hopelessly outmatched by the French artillery. Leonardo's fearsome war machines came to life in the French army. Even though he continued to sketch and design war machines, there's no evidence of any of his plans ever being put into practice. A byproduct of this war with France was the requisitioning of the bronze for the equestrian monument. All of the bronze Leonardo intended to use was melted down by the Duke in order to make new cannons to match the French army. The dream of the bronze horse was dead. He would return to Florence sometime after this, and it's possible he was acting as a spy for Ludovico. Florence, as we discussed in the last episode, was ruled by Savonarola, who refused to join the Holy League and remained aligned with France. Ostensibly, Leonardo was there to secure contracts for various works of art, but this all seems very suspect, given the city's turn against art under the monk. Could also have been very dangerous for Leonardo, who was most likely an open homosexual and traveled with a younger apprentice named Saleh. Saleh would, in fact, inherit Leonardo's fortune upon his death. So it seems unlikely Leonardo would have risked his life to return to Florence unless he was under the direction of the duke. There are also a handful of encoded communiques that seem to hint he may have been gathering intelligence, but nothing that we can definitely point to. So we leave this up to speculation. It does seem that Leonardo was finally able to use his engineering skills for various building projects like bridge and to transport troops and horses. He was asked to join the Pope's forces under Cesare Borgia as their chief military engineer in 1502. 
he helped to drain the marshes around Florence to allow for the Pope's armies to invade the city. His appointment was short-lived, however. Once the Pope died, Cesare was exiled, and Leonardo found himself without a benefactor. Despite his lack of success as a military engineer, he continued to design battle weapons and engineering marvels in his sketchbook. Few of these would ever come to completion, but it is a testament to the man's genius. After Milan fell to the French, he would return to Florence for a short time. As was typical of Leonardo, few projects were completed. He was finally given a commission to paint a fresco of the Battle of Anghiare. This would be a competition between him and a young upstart, Michelangelo. The two would actually develop an animosity toward each other that would remain for the rest of their lives. They were each assigned to paint a version of the battle on adjacent walls within the Sonoria. Leonardo got off to an ambitious start with a full-scale cartoon full of action. Again, he would continue to experiment, possibly mixing oil directly with the plaster. It's impossible to determine exactly what he did, but the finished painting began to melt off the wall. Leonardo abandoned the work completely, as did Michelangelo, who never finished his section of the wall at all. Leonardo viewed this as yet another failure, and he would often say in his notebook, tell me if anything was ever done, or tell me if I have ever done a thing. While in Florence, he would be commissioned to paint a portrait of the wife of a wealthy Florentine merchant, Lisa Gerondini. It is believed he began the portrait while working on the Battle of Anchiari. It's become known to us as the Mona Lisa because of Giorgio Vasari's description of the painting Mona Lisa, essentially My Lady Lisa in Italian. As with other works, he labored over it for years without ever completing it, despite being paid in advance. When Leonardo was invited by the King of France, Francis I, to join his court in Paris, he took the painting with him. Lisa's husband, Francesco del Giocondo, never received his painting, nor did Leonardo return the money. It is his most iconic work, and yet it was little seen by the public until the middle of the 19th century when the Louvre was turned into a public gallery. The portrait was inherited by Soleil upon Leonardo's death and was purchased by the French royal family. There it would remain in their private chambers for centuries. Leonardo admired the painting so much he had it placed in his bedroom in the Louvre. In 1911, it was stolen by Italian nationalists who hoped to earn funds by selling forgeries of the masterpiece. The thief was finally caught when he attempted to sell the Mona Lisa to the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. Leonardo would spend his final days in Paris, creating diversions for the court and working in his sketchbook. He continued to design military machines, but little work was completed during this time of his life. Looking back, he lamented that he had wasted so much of his talent and his youth. He would die in France in 1519, but his reputation would only grow, and he's become almost a mythical character of the Renaissance in the popular imagination. He is the embodiment of the true Renaissance man, skilled in many areas. Despite the small amount of work he produced, it was of such quality and innovation he is easily recognized as one of the world's most influential painters. Next time, we will explore Leonardo's rival, the upstart young sculptor from Florence, Michelangelo. <laughs>